Breaker 1-9, Breaker 1-9, this is Big C sitting pretty in a base station here at FCACHQ in the Apple, my home 20, with a 1017 for all you four-wheel film fans. You might want to get your ears on as we just eyeballed some cinema that might be of interest to some of you rig jockeys out on the road right now, or whenever this gets released. Now don't get too excited and hammer down too quick and get a bear bite on my account for some bear in the bushes. You just keep it steady at a double nickel. Now we got this little show in the back pocket and you got a great episode in your front door. You copy that, Blue Jay? Come on back. Uh, copy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. You blend in perfectly. Oh, boy. <laughs> I would have worked out great in CB culture time, <laughs> which is 1977. This is the third movie we've done from 1977 and the second in two weeks. And we're also doing all the big grocers. You're right. This was the fourth highest grossing film of 1977. Unless you talk to Burt Reynolds, who keeps saying it's the second. Oh, he does? It was only beat by Star Wars. Only Star Wars. Star Wars, Close Encounters, Saturday Night Fever, Smoking the Bandit. And The Goodbye Girl, top five grossing films of 2019-77. The gap between Star Wars and the next movie is insane, even in 1977 dollars. Uh-huh. So Star Wars 1977 says $460 million. That's a lot of money. Even today, that's a lot of money. And Close Encounters is second, and that's $169 million. <laughs> so that's nearly $300 million less. Yeah. Which just shows you what a phenomena looks like. Close Encounters is a pretty damn big phenomena, too. So is Saturday Night Fever. So is, apparently, Smokey and the Bandit. For those of us who were alive in 1977, this was a hangover. We were still in a in a 10, 15 year hangover from Vietnam, civil unrest on the streets of America, assassinations, a lot of fucking upheaval was going on. And now, man, we just want to get in the Trans Am and hit the open asphalt and put the ball on the jack. We don't want to worry about motivation or sense or stuff. No. Like oh, we just want to drink some illegal cores. Fucking get on the road. Found he had nowhere. The money the great is steep and long. And ever found it and seen him thought the bandit was gone. Awesome. So yes, we're here to do Smokey and the Bandit, stuntman Hal Needham's, I think, directorial debut. Oh yeah. Famous for staging car chases, car wrecks. And he was Burt Reynolds' stunt double. He was Burt Reynolds' stunt double. And and everything, Chris, I'm living in a week. Everything is everything, man. Everything is connected. <laughs> Finally. I don't want to be that guy drawing weird connections between things that have nothing to do with each other, but like literally everything that I'm encountering pop culturally is connected to everything else that we're talking about. Well, it just goes to show it's all a very tight web. This movie is a direct line to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I saw last night. Yes. Part of the inspiration for the movie is Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds' relationship. I could tell you the convoluted, complicated premise that sets in motion the Swiss watch-like gear mechanism of the plot of Smoking and the Bandit, or I could just play you this. Bandit! Me and my son are here. <laughs> oh, I love your suits. They must be a bitch getting a size 68 extra fat and a 12 dwarf. I came to make a deal. Uh, 
What's he get if he wins this truck rodeo thing? If? $5,000, Daddy. Chicken shit money. Just what the hell you want, anyway? You to get out of this dumbass rodeo and accept a real challenge. Now, give the Texarkana and back in 28 hours. That's no problem. It ain't never been done before, hot shit. Watch your language, little lady. The problem is that Coors Beer, you take that east of Texas, and that's, uh, that's bootlegging. You know, I believe you're just a little bit scared. That's great psychology. Why don't you just say something bad about my mother? Your mama is so uh, look, ugly. Look, you make this run for me. Now, these Peterbilts here are worth $80,000. That comes to about three grand an hour if you make it 28 hours. How about that for a challenge? Dad, I don't believe that that's necessary. Never mind. Wait a minute. Why do you want that beer so bad? Because he's thirsty, dummy. You see, I got a boy running tomorrow in the Southern Classic, and uh, when he wins, I want to celebrate in style. How much style? Well, I got a few friends and me, uh, 400 cases. So there you have it. The whole reason to watch Smokey and the Bandit is so he can drive 400 cases of Coors beer from Texas to Alabama. The 70s was a hangover time and we weren't really, it's like when you're fuzzy and you're kind of trying to come up with something. Even Bert doesn't seem totally convinced. Why are we doing this again? <laughs> what are y'all coming together for? I saw a couple of interviews before his death, rest in peace, rest in where peace. somebody was asking about this and he's like, so could you explain to us what the plot is of Smokey and the Bandit? He's like, I couldn't explain Smokey and the Bandit if you had a gun to my head. Apparently, Hal Needham read an article about Coors beer was not pasteurized. At the time, in the mid-70s, I guess refrigeration trucks weren't what they are today. Yes. And so they definitely couldn't make a multi-day trip to get to the East Coast. They talk about it being illegal, which is really less the issue and more, like I said, yeah. pasteurization thing. Nobody would sell it. At the time, looking back now, is sort of strange considering that Coors beer is... Who cares? Yes. But at the time, it had a lot of cultural cachet. Sure. Specifically because of that rarity. There was a long article in the Times where- Isn't there always- Looking for any trend, and then they sap all the fun out of it. That's <laughs> New York Times. That's their business model. But I was reading this whole article about why Coors was such a thing. Like so said, was it the freshness or something? Yeah. Pasteurizing involves heating it, and the people at Coors are like, heating it would make it taste bad, so we're not going to do it. Okay. And so if it ever got above a certain- It was like speed. <laughs> The movie or the drug? Like, don't let the bus go below 50 it's a miles or whatever it is. Don't let the Coors beer get above whatever temperature. And in that clip, you had the indispensable Pat McCormick as the giant guy and the equally indispensable 1970s pop culture fixture Paul Williams yes. as supposedly his son, even though there's only apparently a 10-year age difference between the two of them in the movie. Of course, the whole time, I really assumed that actually the little one was the father. And that the ah, big one would be sure, the son. Like, he does look older. You big dummy. Because <laughs> he does look older. That would have so been much really more funny. It really confused me. It was like, wait, Paul Williams is the kid? Where were you when Hal Needham needed you? That would have been a great twist. <laughs> hey, Hal, since we're making up everything else on the goddamn <laughs> set, how about this? Smoking the Bandit came about because Hal Needham read this thing about Coors Beer and thought somewhere in his mind that'd be a great idea for a movie. Well, not only did he read it, he actually had a case of Coors somebody had given him, and he was saying, like, I'm not much of a beer drinker. Yeah. So he put two in the fridge. Next day, like after shooting or whatever. Oh, yeah, the maid they was were stealing them. I mean, let's not cast aspersions against the maid at whatever Holiday Inn or whatever sure. it was, uh, circa 1973. Right, so then he was like, what's the deal with the beer? And then it was explained to him. So then I guess he cobbled together some kind of a script, which when shown to Burt Reynolds, Burt succinctly said, that's the worst piece of garbage I've ever read. However, I will do it. 
That's like literally an anecdote. First, we we just listened a... to a scene, and this is the improved That's dialogue. Right. <laughs> Look, there are movies like this in this era. We're going to get together a bunch of folks that are all kind of yeah. like-minded, pretty much make it up as we go along, and at the end of the day, we're going to have a hell of a lot of fun, and maybe the movie will be good. I, I enjoyed the hell out of watching charm this. alone. It's charming as yeah. fuck. I'm just wondering what charming that dialogue AF. must have been, how oh. bad it must have been. Well, it was probably like really specific car chase plans and then a few scribbled lines about stuff that was supposed to happen. Most of the dialogue apparently was improvised on the spot. Sally Field ended up in it. Burt Reynolds ends up in it. Jackie Gleason ends up in it. Jerry Reed supposed to star in it, but then ends up as the sidekick as to the sidekick. When I watched it, I was most interested in what the hell was going on in our country in 1977. We were going through some shit. We were having some feelings. We needed like mindless entertainment. Yes. This is like eating cotton candy. You're like having a really good time while it's going on. And then when it's over, you just like feel a little queasy, but you're just going to forget about it. Although when I posted the poster of Smokey and the Bandit, hundreds of people like the, I mean, people like the movie. Yeah. I'm glad in watching it, it largely, and I'm going to put that in quotes, largely avoids some of the stereotypical bad racial humor of the era that I yes. would expect in a movie populated by a lot of so-called good old boys. Doesn't really get into that. Interestingly, uses the reverse where the white people are the rubes and the bumpkins and the hayseeds. The few black characters that they have, you know, they do the thing where the black state trooper guy is erudite and well-spoken and Jackie Gleason is the guy who's swearing. And he is surprised when he actually sees that sheriff and sees that he's I an African-American. Honest to God, it wasn't my fault, Sheriff. I stopped. Yeah, right. Hey, boy. Where's Sheriff Branford? I am Sheriff Branford. Oh. <laughs> yeah, for some reason or another... You sound a little taller on radio. <laughs> Aside from a small Confederate flag on the bandit's car, you don't really have a lot of that stuff. You can watch it today without a lot of, you know, guilt, I guess. It still goes down pretty easy. Because, I mean, there's not a lot going on. But you could have imagined some pretty embarrassing yeah. scenes. If anything, it risks a little bit more some of the uh, sexual politics. Sure. But that is largely saved by Sally Field's it is. actual performance. And she and Bert have fantastic chemistry. I just read on my friend Mimi Lee's recommendation, she read Sally Field's recent autobiography, which gets into her life story and her relationship with Bert. I read a few chapters of it last night, and my friend a lot of celebrity memoirs. Mm -hmm. This is definitely a cut above the average celebrity memoir. It's very introspective. It tells you a lot of what you would want to know about the making of a movie like this. But she writes really, really well about what her problems as a human being and a person were at the time of this movie and like literally fell into a relationship with Burt Reynolds within seconds of meeting him. Mm -hmm. And she had like a live-in boyfriend or even a husband and several children in Los Angeles. And it was not a relationship of equals. And he was extremely controlling and yes. not very interested in her career and in her thoughts and ambitions. But there was this chemistry that kind of brought them together, which I think you can see in the movie. Sure. And, you know, it's funny you should say that he wasn't interested in her career because this was something of a big break for her. Yeah. And uh, a part that her agents did not want her to take. And actually in the studio did not want to cast her. And he yeah. lobbied her. A lot of this movie, you know, this movie would not exist without Burt Reynolds. No. Not only because he's the star, but yes. because Hal Needham sold it on the strength of Burt Reynolds starring. 
I think he'd originally conceived, like you said, of Jerry Reed being, but yes. when Bert, P.S., his roommate, Al Needham lived in Bill, uh, yes. Bill. Burt Reynolds' pool house, and so they were friends, but he sold it on that, and then Burt uh, went to bat because he really wanted Sally Field for this role. She's like, why do you want me for this? Yeah. And he said something like, you were great in Gidget. Like, his, <laughs> like Burt's references still went back to the late 50s, early yeah. 60s. They were, somebody, one of the studio people were like, ugh, you really think, like, the flying nun can be sexy? And he's like, that nun. <laughs> is very sexy or something like, <laughs> something like that. Well, here's a brief scene where they meet cute because the bandit on his beer run, one of the obstacles he faces in the road is a just married car pulled over to the side of the road with a runaway bride standing who he picks up. Where are we going? No, don't tell me. Let me guess. We are a bride in search of a wedding. No. No? There, there is a wedding in search of a bride. Let me put it another way. Think of it as a wedding posse in search of a bride. Do you understand that, cowboy? Yeah. What are you doing? These are my shoes. Oh, yeah. And these are my legs. Yeah. What are you going to do with them? With the shoes or the legs? Last time I saw legs like that, they had a message tied to them. What do you mean? These are great little legs. I'm a professional. Well, in that case, you shouldn't be dressed in what? Dancer. Oh. Oh, cowboys love fat calves. They're not fat. They're bigger than mine. Do we really want to talk about legs? Well, one of us does. Otherwise, we're just smart ass. What are we doing now? Well, I am getting my clothes, you fool. That's a good idea. Why don't you slip into something comfortable? So, you know, meet cute. And he starts right in on insulting her looks. I think that's called negging, right? Yeah, he's a pickup artist. He's a pickup before artist that before was fashionable. Time. Sally actually writes pretty interestingly about Bert's psychology. He was such an iconic figure at the time of the making of this movie, and he was the male sex symbol of his time. His famous penthouse spread, I guess. Cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitan, right. The two are often confused. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, his machismo. He was the ur male, the mustache and and all this stuff. But she gets into his past and, like, I think his father was a Florida state trooper Mm -hmm. or police captain and was extremely demanding and not forthcoming with praise or acceptance. And while he was a jock and strived very hard to be the image of the man that his father felt a man should be and excelled at sports, played football. Let's not forget, regardless of your persona on screen, if you pursue a career in the performing arts, you're an artist and you're a creative person. And that's at odds with that. And she said he became so famous. And I thought it was really poignant how she phrased it. He, He became so famous so quick that he defaulted to a pose of not caring, of Mm -hmm. faking it and not having emotions and not expressing real emotions because that was at odds with his image. And she said, that's like kind of this fundamental thing that can happen to actors or people who become famous where you kind of stop being real in moments off screen and forget how to do it or become so good at faking it that that's just how you live your whole life. Sounds reasonable because he's got charm to burn. And yet at the same time, like I, I have to admit, I'm not a Burt Reynolds guy. Maybe I'm reacting to the glibness feels like a distance that that I just yes. don't 
I don't respond to. I was reading a bit of his biography. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he had been, at this point, he's 40-something. Mm-hmm. He had already been a big star. But, you know, they were. he had a pretty long, you know, it's one yeah. of those things, 20-year overnight success. Yeah. He had had a lot of television pilots that didn't go or short-lived series. Yeah. He walked out on a big show yeah. that he was on for a while because he thought he was going to be a big star. You know, and he went back and forth. So there was yeah. always this striving and a frustration. I think part of the reason he walked out on that show was they were treating him just like a big hunk of meat. Sure. And he wanted a little bit more. And then ironically, of course, once he finally was taken seriously, he had been burned so often, sort of created a distance. I know what you mean about him. He's fun to watch in a variety of different movies, but there is that detachment. And then there's a cheesiness which came yeah. into later Bert and the dinner theater and the toupee. It kind of ossified into a cockiness and a presumption of something that wasn't really there anymore. Yeah. And then he had, he could have had a very late career turn towards belovedness and an embracing of Bert. But even in those moments, most famously in Boogie Nights, he he shot himself in the foot by yeah. not knowing what he had been in and famously firing his manager for putting him in his greatest role. Certainly his greatest mid to late career role yeah. was Boogie Nights. And to not get how good that was at the time. Did you read how much he disliked Paul Thomas Anderson? Like that was a big yeah. part of it. The impression I got from reading about it was he felt, here's this kid who doesn't know what he's at. And, you know, Bert had directed some on his own. So, you know, he had his own opinions. But it felt like an ego thing. Well, that's Bert. Well, I was about to say. And that's Leading with the ego. bad that even at that point, you know, for all his ups and downs, yeah. he had an enviable career and Should an be in enviable a victory life. Lap. Yeah. Allow that arrogance. Paul Thomas Anderson is no slouch. Like, yeah. the dude was going to deliver for you and make you look amazing in that movie, which he did. So that's the thing with Bert. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's always, it's that fragile ego, which, of course, that's the gas you put in the engine too yeah. often for an actor. I wouldn't say I'm a Bert guy, but he's got something that if one of the older movies is on, I'll tend to watch it because of the charm and the persona. I don't have much time for the ones where he's not even trying. You made a reference in last week's episode to watching Match Game in the Latchkey TV oh, segment. Uh, right, and it was right. like, Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise. And I was like, oh, it just sounded exhausting already just from the description in the TV guide. Yeah. So yes, the movie itself is just a very pleasing romp through this weird moment of CB culture. And it was a big thing for a while. Like yeah. I was making a little bit of a, a list of the amount of stuff that was going on between- In the year of 1977. Or take, but between like Dukes of Hazard, there was the TV series BJ and the Bear, sure. which probably grew just out of this. Clint Eastwood did his Greg own Evigan. trucker movie, Every Which Way But Loose, yep. and anyway. Which way you can. Which way you can. With uh, starring a really wonderful orangutan. Breaker, breaker. There was this moment, and you know what's funny? I didn't even think of it as Southern so much as driving and people who like cars and motorcycles and trucks. Like, he doesn't really have much of a twang in this. He does wear a cowboy hat, but... He's Floridian by nature. Yeah. Jonathan Demme directed a CB movie. Did you notice that? No. Citizens Band, also from 1977, which stars Paul Lamatt and Bruce McGill. Uh huh. Movie interlaces the stories of several characters in a small town united by their use of CB radio. Paul Lamatt is the local CB coordinator who has time for little else in life. His father, Roberts Blossom, is a sour old man who is nice on the radio. Charles Napier is a trucker hospitalized after an accident with hilarious consequences. I'm laughing already. And then, of course, what encapsulated it all, and maybe even kicked a lot of it off, you have this pop confection C.W. McCall's Convoy. Now, come on. Like we got us a convoy. It just looks like a taller Paul Williams. Well, the 
spark of the moon on the 6th of June in a Kenworth pulling logs. Cab over Pete with a reefer on and a Jimmy hauling hogs. We is heading for bear on I-10 about a mile out of shaky town. I says, pig pen, this here's a rubber duck and I'm about to put the hammer down. Great stage presence, huh? There'll never be another, like, C.W. McCall. Well, in fact, Chris, there never was a C.W. McCall because that's not a real person. What? C.W. McCall, in air quotes, was a construct. He's actually two songwriters. That's Bill Freeze, who you see in okay. this clip that we're playing of the Mike Douglas show. Bill Freeze is the guy who's doing the voice. And Chip Davis was a songwriter. This was a 1976 song written to capitalize on this craze that was right. going around for CB radios and jargon. And so that's just a character that they created, even though neither of them have these credentials. Oh, wow. So it's just a piece of songwriting. <laughs> and then even more interesting, so Chip Davis is a gazigalinier. Like, he's got more money than you could even print in a million U.S. Treasury lifetimes because uh-huh. he went on to found Mannheim Steamroller, if you know what that is. Yes. This juggernaut musical event thing that's taken over Christmas and all of Coming these for you kinds next of massive choral choir. So Chip Davis is the master behind, behind Mannheim Steamroller and Convoy was such a big song. And yeah. Everyone talking like CB radio lingo. So you're right. It's just this weird moment where like driving trucks was an expression of American freedom in 1976, yeah. 77. I guess. I guess. Yeah. I guess <laughs> the ability to communicate with other people in a moving vehicle was new. It had such a weird little moment. And it's an innocence too. I think it's why people like smoking the band. It is that that could even be a thing speaks to the innocence of the time in which we could enjoy a movie like this. That was enough to build a fad on (laughs) in a feature film. It's so well, or was it? There are three Smokey and the Bandit, you know, two direct sequels and like five prequels. When you make $169 million in 1977, yes. Yeah. And guess who turned down a percentage of the gross? Jackie Gleason was offered a lower salary in exchange for a percentage of the gross. And he said, no, thanks. I'll that take, depression mindset. I'll take like the money. money <laughs> cash on the barrel. Oh, my God, Jackie. Oh, my God. Well, we can get. We'll get to him later. One last thing about Convoy. You know, of course, I don't know if it directed, but there was a movie, Convoy, yes. that comes out about a year later, which they had been pursuing when Hal Needham was shopping around smoking the band. I was like, whatever. I'll tell you what. Why don't you direct Convoy mm-hmm. and you can have your friend Bert? But they wanted to do this. They stuck with it. Yeah. So it ended up being Chris Christopher. And Sam Peckinpah sure. directed it. Have you ever seen that? Uh, I've seen it. I haven't seen it in 30 years, but uh, I'm sure that when I saw it, I didn't know that a late career yeah. of Sam Peckinpah directed it. There is a certain thing of films of this era. We watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and that's such a film of this era in a heady, intelligent, emotional yeah. way, in a, in a hopeful way that this isn't all there is having lived through what we have lived through as a country by 1976, 77. And then you have this, which I just think of the sound of munching popcorn and and sodas going up straws and candy bags, because it just feels like that's why we went to go see a movie like this, is just to get away from everything and to live in a world where, like, Smokey's chasing the bandit, and that's all there is. And and look, and the bad guy is the Smokey. Yeah. Is the establishment. You know, that's another, they talk a lot about how this was considered a Southern film. Was Uh, it? Oh, yeah. I think it was people were talking about how this was, well, by you Northerners. I mean, I was born in Tennessee. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, a lot of buckle. people don't realize that, that Jason's Bama born and bred. No, I was born in Tennessee. Sorry. Everything south of. That's uh, okay. We're used to you Northern liberal elites getting us all wrong. So, but, yeah, uh, I got this in my blood, man. 
But, but so it's considered a Southern movie. And like you said, Bert himself is a Southerner. So they opened it at Radio City Music Hall. Of where course, it didn't as do one well, does. And then they opened it in <laughs> Memphis. And guess what? And it turned into a huge hit. <laughs> Radio City. That's probably not the first choice. <laughs> I, of, uh, I was like, I'm telling you, don't bother. They're not going to like it. They're not going to like it. We, but did they listen? No. I'm sure that at the time, the critics drubbed it. Did it get good reviews? Um, I think it got mixed. A lot of people responded exactly as we did. Like, yeah, it's mm. fun. Like, it's good. Yeah. Like, there were some things that were like that were obviously like, it's not really directed per se. It doesn't make yeah. sense. All those things. But but I think even the ones you didn't like, it, the charm and the fact that it sure. was uh, a fad. So no, it wasn't like killed by critics, but it was definitely not praised. Just looking at the IMDb page, yeah, the cinematographer actually shot some really good movies, which I know you're going to be surprised by because that's not you're not looking at Smoking the Bandit and thinking about the cinematography. But you know, Bobby Byrne, who's a cinematographer, Smoking the Bandit was his first movie as a director of photography. But he shot Blue Collar, Paul Schrader's Blue Collar. Yeah. He then did Hooper, which is the stuntman Burt Reynolds movie, Sixteen Candles. Uh huh. Howard the Duck. Bull Durham. That's about it. He's a southerner himself. And he did a bunch of TV. You got to make a living. Apparently, the driving scenes, Sally Field talks about this in her book, Hal Needham would just put one of those camera rigs on the Trans Am, either shooting across from Bert to Sally or across Sally to Bert or from the hood shooting at both of them. And they wouldn't have a crew with them. They would Mm -hmm. just get the camera rolling and then Sally Field or Bert would clap their hands as a clapper because they didn't have a clapper in the car. And Bert would go out and drive on the roads, as she said, a gajillion miles an hour. (laughs) And and the driving scenes don't have that look on some 70s, 80s TV or movies where because of safety, we're actually driving like 40 miles an hour, but then we're over cranking the film. So it looks like we're driving 110 miles an hour. But apparently they would just go out on the road and then like improvise the dialogue in the Trans Am with the camera running and then return and drive back, reload the camera and head out again and get some more, get the camera mounted on the other side and get some more. And that's kind of how they went about it. Well, when you put it that way, the real hero here is the editor. Yeah, where Sally Field says she's just coming off doing Sybil, which yeah. is like the story of an abused woman's multiple personalities yes, or something. Exactly. She has this kind of poignant story of how Bert wouldn't want her to go to Emmy ceremonies or Golden Globe ceremonies because... It wasn't about him. And Uh she has this kind of poignant story of like being in Burt's Floridian compound the night she won either an Emmy or a Golden Globe for her performance in Sybil. She wasn't at the telecast because he wouldn't go, didn't want her to go. And then the movie she does right after this is Norma Ray. It's an amazing fucking movie Yeah, that she's brilliant in, won an Academy Award. Really interesting career for Sally Field. It's good to be reminded of. Yeah, because she's got some some chops. And she's got a lot of chops. Were, the studio people were against it because they didn't find her sexy or sort of interesting. And, and even she was very conscious of how light her big yeah. TV series had been, which is, I think, part of what went to Sybil. But then she was like, all right, I want to do a movie that's a little more fun. She was very conscious of trying to sort of go back and forth and, and get more, I guess, earn the respect of people. She was Gidget. She was the flying nun. She was squeaky clean. But apparently she swore like a sailor and had a difficult childhood, had some difficult parenting um, and had a lot going on internally throughout her whole career that she talks a lot about in her book. It's, it's really kind of poignant, really interesting, yeah. you know, very open about a lot of the stuff we talk about and or joke about that fuels someone's desire to be in front of people or in front of cameras as an actor. Culminating it, like, I mean, I know people make fun of it a lot, but I think of that, like of her Oscar acceptance speech, uh, and you know, that you like me, like th- when you put it that way, you yeah, can see the sort that's of what's going on. the sincerity and wanting to 
Oh, she never thought she was good enough. Ironically, it's the same thing that was going on inside Burt Reynolds' head. I'm not good enough. I'm not a man. I'm not a woman. I'm not this. A lot of that. And I think that's, let's be honest. Isn't that what fuels all of us, Chris? Isn't that why you and I are here in front of these microphones? I am hoping for acceptance. And I'm hoping that the good people who are voting on this year's Potty Awards, uh, you know, are listening. Chris, you know what? You're you're always an award winner in my eyes, regardless of what the people say. (laughs) Regardless of any awards you have or haven't won. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy, delivered daily. Back to plumbing the spiritual and emotional depths of Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> uh, that brings us to the inimicable or inimitable? I'd say inimitable. Inimitable Jackie Gleason. Oh, <laughs> who are you going to say? Jerry Reed. <laughs> oh, well, we'll get to Jerry, but let's do Jackie because it just, you can't say enough. Talk about a pro. Well, talk about a scene stealer. Well, we, <laughs> talk about a ham. Yeah, that, that's, that's the one I was looking for. Hold up on that car wash, gentlemen. Come here, son. Whoops. You look tired, boy. Rest yourself. You punks look tuckered out, too. That's an attention getter. Now, a lady in a wedding gown. Yes, sir. Get in the car? Yes, sir. See who's driving? No, sir. License plate? Yes, sir. Uh, Georgia plates. Um, Ban one. Uh, B-A-N-D-O-N-E. All right, now you boys just stay here and watch the car. There might be some vandals around who want to steal something. So you boys just stay here and keep your hands on a car until one of my associates arrive. And don't go home, don't go to eat, and don't play with yourself. It wouldn't look nice on my highway. Oh, you can think about it, but don't do it. Does anyone do World Weary better than Jackie Gleason? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, you're you down on Jackie? Somebody put... Uh, on the Facebook page, one of our super listeners, Jackie Gleason, at the height of his powers. I saw this. Wait, first of all, wait, I wanted to unpack this because this is, you know how sometimes things go right over my head? Sure. I like don't, the don't rest be so of ready. Us, like don't, be, of don't be so ready to say yes, by the <laughs> happens way. Happens to all of Jesus. us. Frazier, one of our super listeners, said, was so excited that we were doing Smoking the Band and he said, this is great news. Jackie Gleason at the, at the peak of his powers. And you wrote, did you just say at the peak of his powers? And I didn't get it. I didn't understand what you were joking about. It was more like, uh, this to me seems a little bit past the peak, like a little bit over the peak. Some of it oh. is a little bit hammier and more overdone well, I am, than like the Honeymooners. Look, they, like the Honeymooners to me is the peak of his powers. You think? Yeah. I don't know. I I am susceptible to a late career ham chewing sure. scenery. I'm all for it. I'm there for it, as the millennials say, because he is 
a gleeful screen presence all throughout the movie. He is having fun. He has a twinkle in his eye. He is both with his scene partners in every scene and completely in his own world. His tics, his mannerisms, his eye rolls, his incredible straight line mustache, which must have taken a lot of maintenance. Yes. Yeah. The incessant cigarette smoking. I'm just all there for it. I think, okay, is this the peak of his career? Maybe not, but it was a huge late career boost. I mean, well, absolutely. Then, and then, then, of course, he <laughs> screwed up taking the percentage of the, of the grosses. Which is he, why he then <laughs> appeared in sequels two and three. I don't know how much you read about the uh, the sequels, but smoke three. Was- Jerry did get his chance to drive, didn't he? In three, Jerry Reed was the star what? of three. <laughs> well, because Bert wasn't around by then. Bert, I mean, Bert has a cameo. So Smokey <laughs> and the Bandit three limps into the box office. And it was originally going to be called Smokey is the Bandit. Hmm, that's meta. Because was it going to be directed by Truffaut? <laughs> I mean, I know the that man to, is Hal, the Bandit. You can't pry this out of Hal Needham's hands. No, because the whole thing was that it was going to be Sheriff Justice. He does the smuggling or like the- Oh, he's going to go do a run? He does the run of whatever it is. Whatever, whatever it is Whatever yeah. Paul Williams and the Clam big Chowder. guy. And he was going to play both parts a la- Eddie Murphy. And Wait, so he's not the bandit as Sheriff Justice. He's the bandit as someone else. And he's the cop chasing the bandit. Like I think originally they were going to do that. I think people found that confusing. They, that wasn't working. Uh, so they drafted Jerry Reed back in. But it was all very confusing because they kind of didn't know what to do. But all they had to hang this third sequel on was Jackie Gleason. He got some experience playing multiple roles in Smokey and the Bandit 2, where mm-hmm. he appears as Sheriff Justice mm-hmm. and Sheriff Justice's two brothers, one of whom is a Canadian Mountie, and the other of whom is a because let's make Mountie jokes politically incorrect uh, homosexual stereotype played by himself. Oh, Buford, you old sugar. Is that you, Gaylord? You bet your little belly button it is. Uh, did you bring the troops with you? I sure did. Well, that's just fine. Now where the hell is Reggie? I think I hear him coming now. Sergeant Reginald Van Justice reporting for duty. Well, ain't that nice. But have you got the men with you? They're in position and stand at the ready. <laughs> oh, you played really? all three of them. And this is in the this is in three. Number two. Oh, number two. And number two, he had played those multiple roles. Okay. So number three, oh, okay. they were gonna try to see if maybe he could be both Smokey I got and an the idea. Bandit. I'll play every role yeah. in a damn movie. <laughs> The film in three hinges upon a $250,000 wager from Big Enos and Little Enos against Sheriff Buford T. Justice having the ability to transport a large stuffed fish from Florida to Texas. Yeah. Buford picks up the fish and starts driving with his son, Junior. Like the Coors beer, the fish, you don't want it to get too warm or it'll start smelling. I wonder, in negotiations, once you give up a percentage of the gross, like you're not getting that back after it's a hit, no matter who you are. I wonder if Jackie had the leverage after the first one to say like, I shouldn't have done that. I'll do too, but you're going to have to give me the percentage of the gross now. I right. Wonder, I wonder what happened. I remember two much more than one as far as growing up, like yeah. because it was probably timed better to your childhood. And also picking up from the uh, success of Star Wars in terms of marketing and stuff, there were toys, oh, sure. cars, action figures, the whole thing. Two involves uh, transporting an elephant. For whatever reason. Of course. So I remember like yes. the, there was the a toy set that had both the truck and the mm-hmm. elephant, and, you know, all of that stuff. And so that was, that's the one that I actually remembered more than this one. We haven't talked about Junior yet. You mean Tarzan? Tar- <laughs> yes, I do mean Tarzan. Starring Mike Henry, 
as Tarzan crossing into forbidden territory. Uh, I also mean former Talk linebacker. About, I'm telling you, everything comes back. That's right. Yes. Super Lambert, Greystoke, legend of Tarzan, hunter of the killer of the apes of the man jungle. This was his Highlander. This was- uh, What's his name? Mike Henry's Highlander. Mike Henry. That's a, if you're going to be an actor, yeah. what's your name, son? Uh, Mike Henry? Well, which is it? <laughs> Mike or How about Henry? Forgettable, Mr. Forgettableness. Oh, like, I thought he's like I. <laughs> I thought he was pretty funny. I mean, this. he's got a good jaw and a, a nice head of hair. But it's fascinating. Look on his IMDb page, he's got a lot going. Is he on. still alive? He is. He's still working. Very, he retired. Well, he was an Adonis back in the day. Right. Played for the Steelers, the Played Rams. The, yep. But then did three Tarzan movies, which they filmed. Back he was to in Soylent Green. Wow. Yeah, he had a pretty good career. Like he's he's wait. Never let me see. Um, this this he has the feeling of someone who. Maybe did a Columbo. Let me check. Mm, not seeing it. I saw a few TV credits and I thought, oh, maybe I'm going to get lucky. He did a Lou Grant, but Fantasy Island, but no Columbo. He did MASH. He and did MASH. He was a big MASH fan. And he Actually, was uh, Hot Lips's one of the two actors to play Hot Lips Houlihan's husband. Jerry Reed was great. The songs are fucking great. Jerry Reed, who I keep confusing with Chuck Connors. Really? Yeah. I think they just have a similar sort of look to them. Well, Chuck though. Connors is always ready to knock your block off, though. Yeah, this guy looks Jerry Reed's much more like much lovable. Nicer. Yeah. You know? Matt, you gotta play just play us a little Eastbound and Down, because it's just so it's such a great, great song. Eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking. Are we gonna do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound just like no bandit run. Yeah, and Jerry Reed, amiable. Um, he's great with Bert. It's a weird movie because like Everyone's in their own space, except for obviously yeah. Bert and Sally. Everyone's in their own cars, doing their own thing. There's very few scenes that everyone has together, um, which probably is not fun to film a movie where you're just driving in a car all the time. Like they have one scene where they step out of the car. <laughs> Other than that, they literally are in the car, driver, or passenger seat, the entire movie. Jerry Reed steps out of the car, gets beaten up. <laughs> Spoiler for 1977, <laughs> Smokey the Bandit, and then has to get back in the car. He does. With the dog. Uh, very sweet looking dog. Uh, now the dog, I was kind of excited for another thwarted Columbo cinematic universe. When I saw the dog, I was like, that's the dog that was Columbo's dog. Oh yeah. But, but I can't find evidence that it is. Yeah. So unfortunately. By the way, I remember we were making some jokes uh, about, or it wasn't a joke, but you claimed that you had no D&D friends. Oh, and then I saw on Twitter and social media, several of your apparently D&D centric friends were kind of offended that the idea that they, I, that maybe they weren't your friends because they were like basically putting their hand up. Like, what about me? Right. And you and know what? What's, and your, yes, what's your, my response was that uh, I really, I meant that I don't have friends that I play D&D with. Like I don't play. Uh, I have friends okay. who enjoy it. But that's not well, something that uh, I do. And I did reach out to, uh, you to Alan to, to clarify. Okay. And I got a gift back of eye roll. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I, I like, you know, it's funny. Like, I justifiably take a lot of ribbing and heat on social media and various other things just because of my general persona amongst my friends, right? Yes. So it's sort of like I annoy a lot of people. So I think they enjoy when they can annoy me in return. I noticed that there's a, that, that happens to you too. You, you, oh, your yeah. friends enjoy giving you a hard time. Yes. Kicking me in the, yeah. in the back. I, I kind of enjoy shins. that. Yep. I sort of was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> You're not alone, man. I'm not alone. That's why you, you won't see me ganging up on that's you. That's true. You're right. Because I know what it's like. So what, why is that amongst you and your group of friends? Are you, do you give them a hard time? I don't think so. I think I'm a saint. Hmm. But that, I guess that's what you get. Sometimes if you do, sometimes if you don't give them a hard time, they'll give you a hard time. That's true. 
I did want to play a little, uh, uh, just a couple good scenes between Bert and Sally because they do have some good scenes together that are not as egregiously uh, sexist right. as the one we played earlier about fat calves or whatever the hell he's talking about. And I would say that most of the charm in these scenes comes from her giving so much to him in the scene. And he's not really giving that much back to her except relying on a raised eyebrow or a profile, which they ironically kind of comment on. Oh, five, six, seven, eight, one, two. I'm a gypsy. Or that's someone who goes from chorus line to chorus line. Six, seven, eight. You know, I was on Broadway once. Really? For almost 12 minutes. Oh. Show closed the first night. But God, I was so good. You should have seen me. You'd have loved me. <laughs> <laughs> What do you do? Well, I just... Straight. I just go from place to place and do what I do best. What's that? Show off. Yeah. You do do that well. You do. So do I. For almost 12 minutes. Oh, shut up. <laughs> They're good together in that scene. They are. Yeah. You know? A, yeah. And it's actually kind of poignant watching the scene and then reading that from the biography. And this is like a cliche amongst actors. But to hear her tell it, that scene may have had more truth about the reality of how he saw himself in his life, but could never really express than anything he would have ever said in his own words. Yes. Gosh, you find yourself in a movie like Smokey and the Bandit and you're uttering insane truths, reminding me of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in yeah. Hollywood, where he has a very similar portrayal as an actor of shooting something that's not very good, but he is plumbing the depths of his own real experiences and challenges as someone who's finding it hard to maintain his footing in the business. Which is another one of those things about how just stardom, celebrity, all of those things, how it has so much to do with chance and circumstance. It's one thing to do the best performance of your career or reach that kind of truth mm -hmm. in an Oscar-worthy <laughs> movie that everybody yes. knows is going to be a big deal. It's another thing if you happen to just find that moment of greatness yeah. in a <laughs> Smoking piece the of crap. <laughs> no, I mean, Smoking the Bandit, it turns out, be, you know, is a huge sure. success. But people weren't looking for that. So in some ways, yeah. that, that acting would be, yeah, like you miss it because if you're not looking for it. It's funny, you know, it's in this movie, 1977, you know, that scene in this action comedy, I bet you the theater went pretty quiet. I think the audience was with them yeah. in that scene. And this is before Bert and Sally were a thing. So yeah. it was before the time when we knew of them as a couple. And also it was like a little harder to get to know who was a couple. You had to wait for the next month's magazines to come out right. instead of hearing about it on the internet. So certainly at the time people went to see the movie, maybe they were aware that they were a couple, but it was all kind of happening in real time. Yeah. People went with it and... The scenes that they do have together that are like that, to me, she's the one carrying the emotional weight there and giving so much to him. And I'm sure that was resonant too, because it's sort of like he's a callow man who's unable to really give of himself. And she's 
she's a more empathetic feeling person who loves him anyway. And not just feeling, like she's also part of the driving thing. of. Oh, right, the plot. It's not the best written movie in the world, but her character, it's fun. You know, we had played that scene where the car's at the side of the road where she had run away. She had run away. But the thing is, when she tells later, we can either play it or just explain that uh, she had been doing a show Mm -hmm. somewhere down south, ran into Junior, and she was like, One night I was standing out in the parking lot with my my costume with the light bulbs on it, and I met this guy. These can't be my pants. God, he was good looking. And he had this hat on, and he was tall, and I don't know, I think he was from Texas or something, I think, and and I thought, I don't know, why didn't you marry the guy? What else if he... I mean, I was halfway down the aisle. And I said to myself, Jesus Christ, what are you doing? And he was gorgeous. He's gorgeous. And so I was like, I was going to marry him. Yeah. And then on the way up the aisle, she's like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Part of the reason that Smokey is chasing after the bandit is one, because of the potential bootlegging and speeding and all that, but also because his son Junior has been humiliated. You know, she's not a damsel in distress or the distress is somewhat of her own making because she's got... Uh, she's got like spunk and except like she's trying to sort of live life. The impetuousness and her vitality makes her such an interesting character, but it also gives some reason for there to be that openness of uh, emotion that he doesn't have. I was struck wondering again, in a, I, I understand that all plot mechanisms as applied to this are silly. However, The concept that we have, okay, we've got this beer run that's taking place, which, frankly, Jerry Reed, who's driving the 18-wheeler, stands a much better chance of getting the beer from point A to point B if he's not preceded on the highway by a T-top Trans Am going 110 to 120 miles an hour, serving exactly what purpose? Like, why doesn't the truck just drive the speed limit amongst other trucks and arrive and get there in time? No one's going to pay attention to what's in the truck. Jason. Oh, like, why do we, what is he, but, but tell me within the concept of Smoking the Bandit, what he's doing. He's, he's a blocker, man. That's why he <laughs> needs the fast car, a really fast car. He's to distract the cops. Who he will attract by speeding. But then they go after him, and so then the speeding truck behind him right, will but, not be menaced but by the- the truck would never have been menaced if not for the blocker. The truck would have just gotten there. Well, the movie, oh, or I guess are they saying that there's no way we're making it in the time frame yeah, without driving 110, 120 miles an yes. hour the whole way. Yeah. So since we're doing that, the blocker needs to lead the speed in order to Attract be able to the, track and draw the, the police away so that the truck can get there. So I guess it does make sense is what you're saying. Yeah, kind of. You know, <laughs> they keep calling this bootlegging, which I guess it kind of is. Sure. You know, yeah, you're transporting uh, liquor across state lines. It's not like liquor is outlawed completely. It's, you know, it's a different, but even still, the movie starts with somebody else's truck being inspected and found. And found, here. yes. And we have no reason to believe sure. that this guy had been Open speeding. it up. So, you know, people are, but Pusser, in this but, world, Pusser, cops have you nothing else to worry about. But Justice, played by Jackie Gleason, he doesn't know anything about the bootlegging. Right. He's only pursuing the bandit because of the bride, yeah. right? And Junior. Her fault. Tar- Tarzan Junior. <laughs> Tarzan Junior. <laughs> yeah, which would make Jackie Gleason Tarzan Senior, which is something I'd love to see. <laughs> In the clip we played a couple ago, the guy that's, that was looting the just married car that yeah. – uh, Sheriff Justice has pulled over, gives Sheriff Justice the license plate, which is Ban 1. In the construct of the film, Burt Reynolds is given a lot of cash by the Enuses in order to go and purchase the beer and a car. Yeah. So I guess we're led to believe that within a matter of hours, he went and purchased the brand new Trans Am and had a custom license plate made for it. Well, or was it, is the license plate illegal? Well, as I say, I mean, he's, I did read a lot about bootleggers customizing cars during sure. Prohibition and stuff like that. That's the origin to of stock faster. car racing. 
That's the origin NASCAR. of NASCAR. Yeah. Yes. My guess for this though, because I thought about that very same thing, was he's like he's the bandit. Like sure. he does this. He this, just this got a magnetic time. custom plate. Yeah. Because whatever vehicle he's driving is band he one. Puts, he puts that band one that on every time sense. because, of course, in order to do his job, he doesn't want an actual license plate to be tracked back to him. True. You're a good point, Chris. You know, amazing. You really have nailed down that Smoking <laughs> the Bandits, like, theology holds together. I keep trying to bat down the film's plot. Listen, mechanisms. I don't want to pretend that, that it's a great film, but I'll tell you. You're like, it, it holds those, up. Those it are not together. as problem. It holds up. It you holds can't together. pick the seams apart. And it's fun. And listen, I just love anything that involves a big community of people helping each other out. You like that? I do like okay. that. Against the law. Well, sure. So that that sort of appeals to you too. Well, again, we were talking the seventies, the ennui, the cynicism. Sure, the this cynicism, is a yeah. post Watergate. Sticking era. it to the man. Yeah. Fucking look, pigs. And as look at that fucking pig. Yeah. That Jackie Gleason. Yeah. Ooh. Bullcast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two different guys on a bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. It didn't occur to me until I read a little thing about it that Jackie Gleason and Burt Reynolds only have one scene together in the whole movie, uh-huh. unless you count the final scene. They're not really together. They both stop at a roadside restaurant. Choke and, and puke. Choke and puke. And... Jackie Gleason doesn't know that Burt Reynolds is the bandit, but Burt Reynolds knows that Jackie Gleason is the Smokey. Apparently, there were a bunch more scenes that were supposed to be included of the two of them together, because you could imagine, here we have two gigantic stars. Let's yeah. let's have them go together, have a little fireworks. But they said for reasons that were never explained, those were all nixed. I assumed they're two gigantic stars who are probably also two gigantic egos. Mm. I can kind of see Jackie Gleason from what we know about how he improvised everything in Mm -hmm. this. And he was kind of going all sorts of places. Burt might have felt intimidated by that. I could also see Jackie Gleason being, you know, maybe Burt rubbed him the wrong way in the same way that Paul Thomas Anderson Mm -hmm. rubbed Burt on Mm -hmm. the set of Boogie Nights. Well, it was Burt who suggested Jackie for the movie. Sure. One of the things doing the podcast has illuminated for me is some of the kind of unseen mechanics of movies. And one of them I realize is when you have two stars on screen, you're dealing with some things that are outside just what's on the page. You're dealing with our perception as viewers with Jackie and Bert, you kind of had these two alpha males who in each scene have to be the smartest one in their scene. Kind of reminds me of Chevy Chase in National Lampoon's Vacation in our vacation episode available wherever you get podcasts. Chevy's kind of smarmy, smarter than everyone would get in the way of his performance in some other movies, but in Vacation where he's not the smartest person on screen kind of helps him. And I wonder if maybe when Jackie and Bert were together, you have a dynamic where Jackie's the bad guy and Bert's the good guy that we're rooting for. Does that not work? I mean, I had called it ego before, but maybe you're right that it's more like, oh, there's just too much going on on screen at once. Because apparently they did get along. The use of some bitch came from, or had talked about his father to Jackie Gleason. Yeah, so it's not like they couldn't stand each other, but maybe in performance it was too much. Because they do talk a lot on the radio to each other, but it's that kind of movie where you have things happening in different places and it's the way the movie is cut together that's bringing us this sense of them being together. And it kind of works better that way. Yeah. It's the connectedness. Like one of the fun thing about it is all of the other people People that are helping the bandit yes. by giving him updates heads via yeah. heads ups via the CB radio. So by you keeping mean like Little Beaver, Little Beaver, Foxy Lady. Uh, <laughs> 
So uh, amongst the ploys brought to help the bandit, Hot pants. we have a roadside prostitution trailer. Yes. Which all the police officers can't help themselves. Is Hot Pants the one at the drive-in who, who orchestrates yes. the car maneuver that stalls? Yeah. Those pants must be super hot because she orchestrates, like with nary a word, she's got a whole convoy behind her. That's another scene where Sally Field is great. It's a wordless scene for Sally Field because Bert is on the CB talking to Hot Pants and she's going to coordinate all the people to kind of get in the way of the police. And so she's listening to Bert talk to Hot Pants on the CD and it's all sexual double entendre. And Sally Field just does this deadpan look to Bert and she's just looking at him the way a girlfriend or a wife would look at a husband having a conversation that they. A flirty conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Some other good movies that came out in 1977. We mentioned Star Wars, Close Encounters. Yes. Saturday Night Fever. Yes. Slapshot, great film. Oh, I didn't realize that was the same year. Annie Hall. Uh Uh-huh. Eraserhead. Oof. Kentucky Fried Movie. They're all classics, but also in very different ways. When you were talking before about the escapism that was being offered, the escapism this offers is very different than what Star Wars offers. Right. But they share some similarities that are different than what Close Encounters offers, which is- Correct. Even, you know, because it's a more heartfelt movie. Like, it's similar to Star Wars in that it's science fiction, but it's more heartfelt and more about the human condition, whereas this is more fun in the way that I think Star Wars- is, you know, yeah. for whatever it's become as a huge franchise, I don't think it was meant to be It was more big than just escapist fun. Yeah. And also, let's remember, 1977, the Vietnam War ended in 1975. Gerald Ford was president until January of 1977, and then Jimmy Carter took over. We had a gas crisis. We had Elvis's last concert. We had Son of Sam, Apple, Oracle, Commodore, Atari. These are all founded in 1977. Wow. You know, we're dealing with this last gasp of a previous technical era represented by the CB. And it's kind of interesting how when something's about to die out, it rises up again. Hence, white people make America great again under Donald Trump. Trump sort of represents the last gasp of that older time when everyone just presumed the whole world is for us as white men. I think in the same way, you could say the thing happens sort of technologically too, in a way, sort of like, here we are, we have this last gasp of CB radios and Mm -hmm. driving trucks and all this kind of stuff. And then what's about to happen to the world is computers and a whole different type of thing. Another funny little weird bit of trivia, the scene where Bert and Jerry Reed pick up the beer from the closed distributorship, that street and that distributorship is the same location used for the cover of I think Leonard Skinner's first album. Oh, no kidding. And this year, 1977, is the year that a plane crash killed most of the members of Leonard Skinner. Wow. Not to bring you down or anything. Well, thanks. Uh, Three Dukes of Hazard stars had cameos. That's right. uh, I saw one. John Schneider. Bo Duke. I saw him. Uh, he was an extra in a crowd, in a crowd scene. scene at the end. And yeah. what's funny is he ends up then playing a sheriff in one of the prequels. In ah, one of the Smokey and the Bandit prequels. Okay. And he it was Smokey, it was called Bandit Three. But mm. what's funny is it's also the name of this particular entry in the Bandit series is Bandit Bandit. <laughs> so basically it's called Bandit, Bandit, Bandit. Really? Yeah. You know, it's hilarious. Uh Another indication that the movie doesn't really need to do anything other than it does is the end is is such a fizzed out, damp <laughs> squib where, you know, 1977, $80,000 that the bandit is going to get for delivering the beer gets rolled over in the dumbest of ways by Paul Williams' character saying like, how about double or nothing? Uh, can you get us some clam chowder from Boston? Which presumably there's no... 
there's no barrier to transporting clam chowder or even to making clam chowder yourself in Alabama. I think you could do that. And then the smoke, the band is just like, sure. Oh, fuck yeah. it. I don't need 80 grand. And is that the plot of two? Because we're going to no, get the no. clam chowder? They just forget that and start over a I new I think we plot. assume they, they do it. What's the plot in two? Oh, the plot in two is that, um, actually, two does sound pretty good. Because, yeah. so in the end of I don't one, know, one of our listeners said, avoid all sequels. Oh, really? Well, so Frog, Sally Field's handle, Frog, CB handle which is terrible. Case. Now, Dom DeLuise makes an appearance in two. I wonder if that's where they met. But the plot is, so Big Enus and Little Enus go up to Snowman and they're like, listen, for X, Y, and Z reasons, we need to transport this elephant to Dallas, where the Republican National Convention <laughs> is going to be held, so that Big Enus, something political, like okay. either he wants to run for governor or something like that. So Snowman's like, sure, we'll do it, even though Bandit has already been dumped by Frog. And oh, really? And so he is drunk and sort of let himself go. Oh. And so- Does she go back to Junior? <laughs> yes, she does. She does? She goes oh, come back on. and then she leaves him at the altar- Again. Again. <laughs> I think because Snowman goes to her and is like, hey, you know, here's another chance. Like, why do we do it? So then the two of them have to sober up Bandit and get him- Wow. Uh, I'm using air quotes, like back in shape. Back in shape. Which I guess, you know, for, for driving shape. So they go, and then when they pick up the elephant, they also meet this uh, Italian veterinarian, which is what Dom DeLuise plays, with, oh I God. think, a less than politically correct accent uh, from the few clips that I saw. And then they just do the same <laughs> same shit as they're trying to transport this elephant that turns out, spoiler, for 1980-whatever's Smoking the Bandit 2, turns out it's pregnant, gives birth to other elephants along the way. I guess there's some element of conflict between somebody mm -hmm. and Bob's your uncle. Wow. This is one of those movies with sequels where it's sort of like the sequel has to hit it for the audience all the same beats that we already lived through once. We just want to live through them again another year and a half, yeah. two years later. So they figure out convoluted ways to sort of do the same thing. So it's like, well, she went back to Junior. Why would why should we do that? <laughs> She does have a growth process over the course of Smoking the Bandit yeah. where we're led to believe she's found her true self and it's not marrying Junior. Like what construct would possibly occur? Well, I guess say, whatever you know what? fight that they broke up with. That lunkhead. That bandit and uh, frog broke up. Yeah, apparently, you know, Jackie smoked five packs of cigarettes a day. And in order to do that, this is one of those physical feats, if you can call it a feat or like a suicidal feat. That's a hundred cigarettes. You get 20 in a box. 100 cigarettes a day, you have to wake up and light a cigarette immediately upon waking. And then for the entirety of, the, of your day while you are awake, you light another cigarette off the one you're just finishing. That's what Jackie Gleason did. So it's that kind of dedication he also brought to his roles, which is why <laughs> he's smoking he in every a scene. consummate performer. Even though, I mean, there are always like great Jackie Gleason stories. He also enjoyed his liquor. Mm -hmm. And so I think when filming like the Jackie Gleason show or when he was on Broadway doing some shows, he would go to the bar when he wasn't on stage and like order a drink, have them like leave it, go back, do his line or two, come back. Ah, uh, the grease paint. Yeah, that's right. the booze. I did want to say something about uh, Jerry Reed. Yes. Just that, uh, did you ever, did, have you seen Gator? Sure. Because um, I hadn't seen it, but I- Is that a serious Burt Reynolds movie? I think a lot of a lot of Burt Reynolds movies, they, all, they always say are like action comedies. So I, I'm not quite sure, but it looks like it's a little bit more serious, more of a mm. gangster thing. And, and Jerry Reed plays the heavy. This and, is an early Burt Reynolds, right? Oh, this is a sequel to White Lightning. Right. I was about to say, I don't know if Jerry Reed is in both, but I know he plays the heavy in Gator, and I did watch mm -hmm. a few scenes. Because like I said, in watching this, because he's kind of the second banana, yeah. and he's with the dog, like he is such a, like, a light, fun presence, and I yes. even enjoyed his singing and stuff. So his scenes in Gator, mm -hmm. like he, he was good. Was he? Like I would have liked to have seen Dramatic him Dramatic scenes stuff. you're talking about. Bones, 
Make those drinks strong. Have a good trip, Gator. Hell, I don't want to forget this stuff, Gator. I kind of like this stuff. <laughs> now, what else on your mind? Nothing. Goodbye. Oh. <laughs> oh, you sure having a good time off that jungle bones pudding in your drink. Uh, did you put some in my drink? All right. Get up, look. Now, you gonna pass that to me. Pass that? Now, when you wake up, wake up. you're gonna be in your car and you're gonna be just outside the county line. Now, you won't go home. Well, that car's gonna be pointed. Drive to you. I love you, boy. So I'm gonna hurt you. And his last acting credit was in The Waterboy. I saw Adam that. Sandler. Died in 71. That's young. That is young. No, you know what's a Burt Reynolds movie that I like that's a guilty pleasure? Sharky's Machine. You ever seen that? No. And I read That's like, one you got to see. And that's one that Burt directed, like Gator. Correct. You know, it's a crime movie, sort of safe cracker crime thriller. Right. And I think, is Sharky, like, is he a former cop that- had a bust go wrong, or am I thinking of literally no, Sharky every is other a, movie? No, Sharky is a cop, and he gets demoted. Then he's, like, in the Vice Squad, and then we have some sort of 80s shit with, like, a hooker. Then it gets into, like, a political thing where the hooker is, like, sleeping with somebody who's running for Senate or something. Right. I don't know why I thought there was, like, a safe-cracking thing. Oh, that's a different movie. The safe-cracking movie is with when he's with Corky Sizemako. That's well, a great say, movie. There's, I know. that's Breaking in. The, and it's by the same guy who did um, Local Hero. Bill Forsyth. Bill Forsyth. That's what it is. That did not do particularly well. I remember Bert was It's probably another one that Bert was great in and then didn't get that it was actually like a pretty damn good movie. Yeah. That's a really good movie. And Casey Sizemako was great in this era. He, he turned in some really good performances. Anyway, Breaking In is a good movie. Yeah. And that's another one very similar. It's like, Bert, you, you just were in a really good kind of artful movie. Like- and he didn't, he didn't get it. <laughs> oh, by the way, I love celebrity auctions. Uh-huh. It's one of my favorite things. And the Burt Reynolds celebrity auction, I was pretty heavily invested in trying to purchase a couple items from the estate because I love bizarro celebrity ephemera. And there was a lot of that. Like, um, uh, what would be highlights? Like the oh, smoky I mean, and the bandit like, hat? Well, like they had all that stuff. They mm-hmm. had the ring. They had the watch that he's wearing with like the, the jewelry on it. But they would have like, you know, chaps yeah. and bathrobes and slippers and um, bizarro paintings. I wanted, there was a fan painting, I guess, that someone did of Burt Reynolds in all these different guises. Uh-huh. Like one of them was like a clown. One of them was like, it was just really kind of <laughs> Burt Reynolds bad, sad disturbing and kind of great. And like I was bidding on this stuff, but I just, I never could get anything. Right. And then friend of the pod, Steve Willis, brilliant creative director, painter, artist, has a new podcast with Mimi Lee. He painted, I don't know if you remember, in our old office, I had that giant naked Burt Reynolds cosmopolitan with a Burt sock puppet covering up his man parts. Do you remember that painting? It was, I don't remember it's that. It's in storage now, yeah. but it was probably up. That was at that same time because Steve and I were both into finding the most obscure, bizarro items to purchase from the Reynolds right. estate, but we couldn't get anything. Ugh. Hal Needham went on to direct Cannonball Run and a bunch of other... <laughs> A bunch of other stuff with Burt, uh, including things that people seem to like, like Hooper. Uh, yeah, Hooper's Ace, a good movie. Which was a... Stroker Ace. Did not do dumb. well, yeah. but... And then all, I think he directed all one, two, three, four of the prequels. Bandit, Bandit Goes Country, <laughs> Bandit, Bandit, Beauty and the Bandit, and wow. Bandit, Bandit, Silver Angel. You know, is it time for a new Bandit? What's the most recent Well, the last Bandit? one was in 1994. 
What's the like? I'm gonna start growing that mustache. What's like the woke oh bandit movie that that we didn't know we needed? He'd be driving a Prius, certainly transporting what? Like fruit flavored vape liquids, medicinal marijuana. If you can get all this marijuana <laughs> to Brooklyn in 14 no, hours. No, how about this? It's a self-driving truck. And Bandit is just doing it all through drone work from the comfort of his home. He doesn't have to actually yeah, go yeah. out. He's in like a video game chair. A video a game car. chair. That is the worst. I wonder if we would have enjoyed Cannonball Run more or less than Smoking in the Bandit. There's part of me like. You kind of so wish we had done Cannonball Run. Eh. It's much earlier, right? No, it's later because this oh, is later. This is Hal Needham's directorial oh, debut, okay. and he also directed. That. I think you're going to like it less because I think it's like the era of like hamming it up with Dom on screen, and 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 like I think a little of that goes a long way. But on the other hand, it also has such a huge cast of so many like that. That's to me what seemed appealing about it. Though, like I said, you know, I did enjoy this. I thought it was pretty fun. True. Uh, you know, it's another funny thing about Bert. I realized in the very first scene, you hear that laugh. Yeah. You had cut back in a little bit of that Burt Reynolds laugh. <laughs> like Eddie Murphy, he's a guy that has a atypical laugh for his persona. Uh-huh. So if you know Eddie Murphy has that hilarious laugh, it's kind of that braying like. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's deployed to great effect by both actors at various times because it, it has a genuineness to it. You know it's unaffected right. because it's so silly. And Bert had a great silly laugh. And yeah, and those, were, those would be the things that were most fun. Because a lot of people make something of when he turns to the camera at yes. one point. In 15 minutes in, he breaks the fourth wall and smiles at the camera, which is great. Yeah. I like it. I mean, you want that, don't you? I, I don't in general. Like, I'm somebody, I dislike talk shows so much, mm -hmm. specifically because of that. And yet, it is so right for him. There are a few actors who can sort of pull it off in that way where it wouldn't seem affected or cloying. Yes. And so do with the laughter when it does come out. Yeah. Like you said, it seems so sincere that you can't help but get caught yeah. up in it. And then the last thing I did want to mention, uh, getting back to the Dukes of Hazard cameos, mm -hmm. then, of course, uh, Burt Reynolds, one of his last performances was as Boss Hogg in the Dukes of Hazzard movie. Mm, that's too bad. First of all, he's not right for the part. Through. Where was Sorrel Book? Well, is is he alive? I don't want to... If he if he him. is... Actually, you know who would have been a good boss hog in that? If he could have done... I think he could have done Southern because he talked about it on the podcast. Lee, Lee Wilkoff would have been a good boss hog. <laughs> yeah. He could have pulled that off. You know, and he played Southern in the movie he did with Gary Oldman. That's and, right, and, yep. And yeah. Mehmet, as they as he called him, the Thanksgiving that never was. I thought you were saying that was the name of the movie. I was like, I don't think that's what it was called. No, but it was called Waxahachie. That's right. Chattahoochee. Or Chattahoochee. Or Chattahoochee. Uh, yeah, Sora Book died in 94. Oh, wow. Yeah. But wow. yeah, actually, looking at it now, yeah, Lee would have been great. Who are the Duke boys? Uh, Sean William Scott. And one of the guys from Jackass. Oh, seriously? Johnny Knoxville? Yeah. I uh, saw someone yesterday. Jessica Simpson was Daisy Duke. Oh, I think that's, that's probably what... Um, most of the financing she came from. Didn't fill out the Dukes. No. One piece of alternative casting. Put that one back. Or I guess two pieces. As we had mentioned, Jerry Reed was originally supposed to be the bandit. bandit. Al Needham didn't realize the good luck he would have when he dropped the script off with his roommate. But he also... <laughs> The only other character was that Buford T. Justice was supposed to be, or his conception of, before Jackie Gleason, was Richard Boone. Uh, Richard Boone, who you would know from Have Gun, Will Travel. He's the guy who has the gun and will travel. It made a little bit of sense because, of course, Hal Needham made his in name his as Western. a stuntman, his Western stuff, and he had worked with Powers Boone. Uh, 
Power, power Spoon. Richard place. Boone. I don't recognize this man. Actually, I recognize him later in life. You weren't a have gun, will travel. That's one of the- I don't I've like never guns. Seen, I, you, I like traveling. traveling. <laughs> I like traveling. I don't like traveling with a gun. That's the great thing about it. You have this guy, Paladin. He's doing it for you. Oh, Paladin. I mean, what is that? Is that a Western? Well, Paladin is the name of the nameless character in Have Gun, Will Travel. Okay. Like nobody knows his actual name, but he goes by Paladin mm. and he hands out business cards. Why does he go by like Bob? You know? I don't know. Those are knight, like the name of the knights in King Arthur's court. That's what I'm saying. Like I got to know a bunch of mythology. To this is, what, is it a this good is show? A, a lot of people love it. Like Quentin oh, really? Tarantino used it as like a, huh. uh, for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Why, is it, is a, it like insanely violent? I don't think it's time? so much that. I think it was just sort of a little bit more thoughtful than a lot of the other Westerns. Hmm. Sort of like uh, Rod Serling. So it was sort of a uh, revisionist Western, an early revisionist Western TV series? I think it was early enough that it didn't wasn't even revising. It was sort of like the road not taken. Okay. That's the only other alternative casting that I have. Shall we move on to headlines? Sure. Headlines. Yesterday, there was a huge kerfuffle because some executive from Sony Pictures said that some very big stars, you wouldn't name them, <laughs> wanted very desperately to remake The Princess Bride. And it brought like Carrie Elways, who wrote one of the great making of yeah. books. And he came out and was like, there are very few perfect movies. Let's not do this. And they wouldn't, my God. Although they do in every other stupid remake. There's a Hogan's Heroes remake. Uh, set at the same time? No, it's not. I mean, Nazis are big in the news now, so yes. I can see why they'd want to capitalize on that. But no, this one, and I have to admit, this it also for, sounds like it's a reboot of National Treasure. The pitch is the reimagined version will be a single camera action adventure comedy series <laughs> set in present day, focusing on the descendants of the original heroes now scattered around the world who team up on a global treasure hunt. Yesterday, there was so much news about other reboots, specifically with Apple, Peacock and stuff announcing their slates that I thought like, oh, here is literally the last piece of IP that had not been rebooted. Speaking of Hogan's Heroes, shout out for a gem of a film, Ivan Dixon, who played Kinchlow on Hogan's Heroes. Uh-huh. Directed The Spook Who Sat by the Door, mm -hmm. 1973, one of the most biting and insightful films you will see about black culture in conflict with the American power structure. It's a very dark comedy and surprisingly and shockingly violent and unafraid. Highly recommend it if you can find it. I remember we watched it. I don't think we ended up talking about we it. We ended up talking about it. In relation to Black Klansman. In fact, there's actually, it looks like there's a documentary that has been made about it. Oh, yeah? Infiltrating Hollywood, the rise and fall of the spook who sat by the door, which I would be very curious to see. Let's see. The year it gives is 2011. All right. Well, I'm going to watch that. Anyway, Chris, what else you got? Let's see. Uh, there's a lot of TV news. The uh, Besides Hogan here, Hogan's Heroes, another TV thing that I thought was interesting Tinder. They have a TV show that they're producing for their app to literally watch on your phone. And one of the interesting things- Can you date the people in the show? Maybe in second season. First season, they're just focusing on making it like a choose your own adventure thing. So okay. with swiping, uh, the, uh, the show itself will change. Uh, but the funniest thing about it was, I won't even go into what the plot supposedly is, but it's don't. set in a pre-apocalyptic world, which I was like, that's, that's any world, that's any, any world, world, any, okay. That's like, before it gets interesting. Smoking the Bandit is a better plot device than that. Yeah, yeah. but that's it. Great. And I got no rants or raves. You know, I had some, but I think I'm going to save them because I can't do justice to them right now. Fantastic. Well, in that case, until next week, as much as we've enjoyed this film, we here at Full Casting Crew are still partial to the original. Man has to see things as they really are. After all, man with responsibilities can't walk around with his head in the clouds all the time. A man should keep his feet solidly on the ground. Oh, a man should have his dreams. 
But a man has to learn to put those dreams to some practical use. Not just sit around and think about them all the time. Pretty chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, we love you and our pretty chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang loves us too. High, low, anywhere we go on chitty chitty we depend. Bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, our fine four fingered friend. Bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, our fine four fingered friend. Thank you for listening to this episode of Full Cast and Crew. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, drop us a line. You can email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at at fullcastandcrew or on Instagram at fullcastandcrew or, of course, find the podcast on Facebook. And if you really, really enjoyed it, take a screenshot of your favorite episode on your podcast player and forward it to a friend so they can subscribe and figure out what you're always laughing about. And if you didn't enjoy it, I don't know, drop us a line anyway. I can take it.